Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Love Offering Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Adams, and today's guest is Mary Morantz. Mary is the author of Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots, and she is on the show today giving us permission to stop running. Join us as she shares how to move from achieving, striving, and performing for your worth to the grace, freedom, and purpose that come from knowing your identity and calling are determined by God. You are not in a race with anyone. Good things take time. Real things take time. And slow growth equals strong roots. Well, hello, Mary, and welcome to the Love Offering Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Rachel, thank you so much for having me. And honestly, I just want to say, like, I think the concept for this podcast is amazing. Um, from the second we, you know, heard about it and I went to check it out, like what a beautiful concept of just like, what are we offering the world? You know, it's so easy to get caught up in what we can get or what we have to achieve, which is probably a lot of what we'll talk about today. And I just think like to flip that narrative is just such a beautiful like invitation you've given all of us. So to get to hang out with you for an hour and talk about it, I'm just really excited. Well, I'm really excited. And I feel like we're kind of kindred spirits already. We're kind of both from the South. And so I wanted to start by hearing some of your background, your story. And so for those that aren't familiar with your story, you grew up in a trailer in rural West Virginia, Mm -hmm. where the first, and you were the first in your immediate family to go to college and went on to earn a master's degree in moral philosophy and a law degree from Yale. So Mm -hmm. just tell us a little bit more about your background and where God took you after obtaining your degree. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a mouthful there. Isn't it? <laughs> no, that was from your bio. You know, I think no, no, no big deal there. Just, yeah. Like trailer to Yale law that that's pretty normal. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a really, sometimes I have to remind myself, it actually is my story because it does feel like one of those Hollywood sort of, um, silver screen worthy stories, but to me, and I think this is, we'll get into this a lot, I bet a lot of the journey of that story, it's like, it's like two levels. There's the like, oh, the places you can go level um, that we all sort of start out with, especially if we began in more humble beginnings. Like we feel this drive to get out, to go out and make something of ourselves. Um, In my first book, Dirt, I talk about that as the girl in the red cape and she's running, trying to escape her way out of the deep, dark woods, the big, bad wolf ripping at her heels. You know, she runs because she feels like if she stops, it's going to kill her. And then breathless and wild eyed at the last minute, she looks over her shoulder and she finally sees it. She is the girl in the red cape, but she is also the wolf. And that voice in her head that has told her you must run and not stop running. It will never be safe for you to stop. That voice is her own. And so that's kind of like the journey back home part, right? It's like the first part is going out into the world. Uh, The author Ian Morgan Crom was on my show not too long ago. And he said, I feel like the first half of our lives is the parable of the talents. We're just going out in the world, trying to figure out how to make a profit with our gifts, how to take what we've been given and go make more. He said, but the second part of our life is like the parable of the prodigal son. We're all just trying to find our way back home. And when he said that, I burst into tears because that is the like quintessential raw nerve epitome of where I am in that journey. It's going back to the beginning and trying to make peace with it when no amount of achieving seemed to fill that hole. And so the elevator pitch version of my story is single wide trailer in rural West Virginia to Yale law school. But man, have we seen that movie, man, have we read that book? Like that's been told a dozen different ways. 
And where I think my story starts to diverge from what you sort of expect from that story is what does it look like to have empathy? What does it look like to look at that story through the lens of grace and to understand that being an adult is really hard. And my parents who were 17 when they got married and 20 when they had me, maybe they were doing the best that they could. And what does it look like to tell a story like this? And it actually end with the family being drawn closer together for there to be healing and redemption not estrangement where a lot of those other stories tended to end and that's their story to tell. And it's not mine to, you know, comment on, but I just started to wonder, can you explore a story like this and it actually bring healing and bring people closer together? So that's sort of, you know, the journey after law school, my husband and I started a business together, photography business and an education business for creatives that we ran for 15 years until 2019 when I signed, um, it's actually a five book deal with my publisher. So I'm going to be busy with that for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, something that just stood out to me in what you said was humble beginnings. And that just made me think about Jesus. You know, mm. he came to the smallest city, into a manger, into a barn and like what humble beginnings. And, you know, while we could in our world, just because culture is what culture is, we're taught this message that humble beginnings aren't great, you know? Um, and yeah. I think, gosh, doesn't Jesus just flip that on its head? You know, yeah. when we think about the muddy, messy, and broken, you know, that's how he came. And so, you know, that's what your, your book dirt is. And you've discovered that God does his best work actually in the muddy and the messy and the broken only Mm -hmm. if we learn to, to dig in. And so how did you, what did that look like for you? How were you able to dig in, in this place? Yeah. You know, Rachel, I'll tell you when I was getting ready to release this book called dirt and The only thing we had released at that point, this was like four or five months before the book actually came out was the title and the cover and the cover. If you, if you're listening right now and you either go to the bookdirt.com or you Google that or look on Amazon and you look at the cover, you'll see that photo is the actual trailer that I grew up in. I don't know why, but a lot of people are surprised by that. I think they like maybe have become accustomed to like stock photos being on the cover, but it's the actual trailer. My husband, Justin took it the first time I took him home to West Virginia to meet my family. And so, you know, when that was being released and the only thing that was available to people who knew me where I grew up was this title and it's boom, there's like, we're just airing all the dirty laundry. Like there's that trailer on the cover for everybody to see. There were a lot of people who were kind of concerned or up in arms. There were, there was, I'm just going to be straight with you. There was an entire Facebook thread from the hometown Facebook group of like, what is this book going to be? because they were so used to it stories like this being i I'm going to sling the mud. I'm going to sling the dirt. I'm going to throw people. I'm going to tell all the dirty little secrets and this concept that the word dirt could actually be a good thing was a battle, Rachel, that I had to face, not just with like the hometown Facebook group, but every stage of the publishing process, they loved the story. They loved the writing. They were not convinced of the title. And for me, I had never been more sure of anything in my life. I knew that book was going to be called dirt. Because to me, you know, I say in the book, it always started with dirt. And I mean that on two levels. So for my story, it started with my dad being a logger and coming home with these muddy boots and tracking the chevron shaped, you know, chunks of mud from the bottom of his boots all throughout the trailer. No matter how hard I tried to clean up our home, no matter how hard I tried to clean up my story, the dirt had a way of finding its way back in every single day. And then on a macro level, when we think about how God created us, like when we think about 
to me, the story of God, this, our relationship to God, so much of it is about creation and his invitation to co-create with him. You know, he doesn't need us to, he doesn't, he did not need Mary Morantz to write a book called Dirt, but he invited me and said, let's go see what we can come up with together. And when we think of all of the different elements that he had available to him, because remember it was like shiny and new, like sea water, ocean water, air, gold, diamonds, mercury, unicorn dust. I don't know if that's there or not, but <laughs> there were a lot of things he could have chosen from to create what I believe would be his most precious and, and his best creation in the form of man. And um, it would eventually be woman, of course, but like he looked at all of those things available and it wasn't moonbeams or sun rays or any of those things we mentioned. It was the dust of the ground, which is another word for dirt. And he leaned down close and breathed creation into it. And this, I picture like the vapor of God's breath mixing with that dust and the mud it would form. And I think if, if mud was a good enough source for him to create all of mankind, then the muddy parts of our story, I bet he can do a lot of good with. Mm, oh my gosh. The visual of that is just beautiful and, and really unfathomable when you really try to wrap your mind around it as a human. But, you know, I think, you know, thinking about who's listening today and, and maybe mm. the woman who is listening, who feels very broken and disqualified yeah. based on her upbringing or her experiences or her background, how would, how would you encourage her to believe that the story of struggle can actually become God's story of redemption? Yeah. I mean that you just said it right there. There maybe, I mean, maybe every single one of us, I don't know. I don't have the data on this, but I feel like maybe if we pulled every woman listening or every woman just walking around in this world and said, is there something in your past that makes you feel muddy and dirty and scarred and broken and disqualified before you even begin? We'd have a vast 99.999. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know the actual statistics, but I've not, I've yet to meet a woman who's like, no, I'm good. You know, that, that, that has not occurred in my life. And I feel like, um, it's, there's just, there's like a special kind of imprint on you that feels, you know, I call it these smudged fingerprints, these, these muddy moments, leaving smudged fingerprints across our lives. When you grew up without a lot and, and, or if you had a parent leave, which I talk about in the book, my mom left when I was nine, if there's some sort of abandonment, if there's some sort of society telling you, you don't matter. If there's just like something about the messages you're receiving every single day, um, that say there are lives. And then there's a whole other subset, a, a second class subset of lives that just don't really matter that much. And we know that there are a lot of, a lot of reasons for that, right? Where, wherever you grew up, the color of your skin, how much money you had, there can be a lot of different things that contribute to that message. So that's the first thing I know. Is And that's the thing that I think there's just something really powerful in that. Brene Brown talks about two of the most powerful words one human can say to another is me too. Me too. You're not alone in this. We all feel that way from time to time. So I think that's where we start. And, and the second thing that I'll say is, you know, my husband, Justin and I, we would give these like photography talks for years in our industry where we talked about business and marketing and lighting and posing and afterwards, people would always come up and say, oh my gosh, you know, thanks so much. Let me ask you this technical question. But the first time I stood in front of one of those rooms and showed a picture of that trailer and said, I'm the girl in the trailer. And let me tell you my story. That was the time we had a line all the way out the longest ballroom the conference offered down the hallway into the lobby. Two hours later, security had to come break it up. And I don't tell you that to be like, look how amazing we were. But because that 
thing I thought I had to hide in order to be a professional, respected leader in my industry. Look at my nice new dress I bought for this conference. That was actually holding people at arm's length. And the second I said, here is me, all of me, the whole story that I carry. Let me tell you what I had to go through to get to this moment standing here. That was the time it clicked. And they stood in that line, not to say, you're amazing. You're the girl in the trailer. They stood in that line to look me in the face and say, I am the girl in the trailer too. I, that's how I grew up. I never knew anybody in this industry who stood on that stage, grew up like I did. And, and you said it yourself before, like, at the very top of this episode, there's a kindredness there. If I had just shown up in my puffy sleeve shirt, which nobody can see right now, but I'll tell you, it's adorable. Funny. It is cute. <laughs> um, you know, with my flowers in the background or whatever, and my, my house in Connecticut, that's a different connection than if you knew my story. That's everything everybody listening needs to hear. We are connected immediately on a deeper, more profound level. You would fight for me harder. I would fight for you harder because we know there's something in our story that binds us. There's something in our story that says we have gone through similar things. And I want to see you share your gifts. I want to see you shine your light because look at that muddy place that you started. So this thing you think right now, everyone listening, please pay attention to this. You think it disqualifies you. It is actually the thing that will connect people to you in a way you would never be able to wrap your head around. Yeah. Even if you stay in the muddy trailer, do you know, like, and you don't make it Connecticut. Does that make sense? Yes. 100%. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and man, that is such the journey of book two of my second book that's coming out. Slow growth equals strong roots dirt is let's get out. Let's see where we can go. Yeah. Law, like roll credits, cue inspirational score. She's done it. Except then you have to go on living the rest of your life. And you like, there's this part in dirt where I say, Oh man, don't miss this. Somebody listening. Do not miss this. I'm talking about, I'm out in the yard. You know, it begins with God, like visiting me at night by the window. He's in the stars leaving, you know, drawing down close enough to leave those fog marks on the glass. And then he starts to visit me in the day. And he's everywhere. He's in the green of the grass. He's in the bird stepping into flight. He's in the sun on your face. You can still feel the fire. He's your hands breaking up the cold, hard ground. He was color and freedom and fire and dirt. And it says, he was the one who told me, just wait, the story of yours is going to make sense one day. I'm going to use all of it, the muddy, the broken, the hard. One day you're going to see that it's beautiful. And I have spent a lifetime, Rachel, thinking that a beautiful life meant a beautiful home, beautiful clothes, the right kitchen island, the Pinterest worthy vacation, whatever. And you get older and wiser and you start to realize like that stuff is great. I'm thankful for it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, discredit it, but it doesn't fill this hole. It doesn't change anything. And can I find a place to make peace that even if I were still in that trailer, like you said, even if I just moved one town over and was in a double wide instead of a single wide, if that's all the upward mobility we're talking about, would I still believe God was using my story? Now that that's a journey I'm still on. You know, you mentioned uh, and alluded to your newest release, which is called slow growth equals strong roots, which is about finding grace, freedom, and purpose in an overachieving world. Mm -hmm. And so because of your background, did you feel this pressure to achieve and perform? Yeah, I a hundred percent did for all the reasons I just said in terms of, oh, cool. So, so like, if this is going to matter 
then it's got to be the Hollywood level ending, right? It's got to be your hillbilly elegies. It's got to be your, I mean, I wasn't obviously using that language then, but it's got to be like something worthy of everybody come look at this success story. But then, you know, you just kind of add to it. Like, I think, man, I think there are a lot of things, especially parenting in the eighties, but I think probably parenting generally where you can have the best intentions for your kids and still inadvertently give them messages that their little eyes and ears are interpreting as they take in the world in a way you never intended. And so my dad being so driven that I would get out, that I would have a different story than him, that I would have more opportunities than he did, you know, that, that equated to the message in my head that you only earn love with A pluses. You only earn acceptance. You're only, you only make people proud by what you can do. And if you asked him that now, it would just like, he would crumble. He would never intend that message. But when we're growing up, when we're five, when we're six, when we're seven, we're starting to, you know, take in the world around us, we can start to, it's the whole, you know, core of the Enneagram. I, I must be the peacemaker. I must be the fun one. I must be the perfectionist. My room must always be clean. It's all of those things where we start to understand who we are in the world based on what we can do instead of just who we are at our core. So yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I've had the message my entire life that I was as good as what I could accomplish. You know, I, there's a story in dirt where I talk about being four years old and my dad made me memorize and recite the entirety of twas the night before Christmas. It's 56 lines long in front of our entire church, the like packed out standing room, only Christmas pageant, giant spotlight, dark church, tiny little Mary Jane shoes on these, on the stage. And I did the whole thing perfectly. And then the next year he came back and had me do it again. This time just was the night before Jesus came, which is an actual poem. If you did not know, no. um, and I messed it up. I messed it up. I didn't practice as hard. I didn't memorize as hard. I didn't know it as well. And so what they would do is they would, each parent would bring one gift to the pageant for all the kids who participated to open that night after the pageant was over. There's this like stack of presents and everybody's opening them and it dwindles down to this one that my dad had brought for me. And I'm just like sitting on the stage with my little feet swinging back and forth, like head, you know, bowed really low. And my dad's like, why are you not opening your gift? And here's the thing I knew he was disappointed. I knew he was disappointed that I didn't do it perfectly. My dad is famous for saying, don't fidget and don't mess it up. And I had done both of those things. Um, dang it. Whew. But like he said to me, like he went and got the box and placed it in my hands. And he said, this gift doesn't have anything to do with what you did or did not do this book is or this gift is because I love you. And I think that's a picture of God. I think that's a picture of us making sense of our achieving in the world is sure. Go do the things, try the things. I've given you gifts, go use them in the world. But like, you don't have to earn any of this. You don't have to earn a second of this love. Yeah. Yeah. That is where the freedom comes in. Like, I love you for you because mm -hmm. of who you are. And, and I think that that's how, if I were to assume that that's how God wants us to love him too, not because of what he does for us, just because of, yeah. of who he is. And, um, you know, when I was reading the back cover of your book, 
and maybe see your press kit, you actually tell a narrative about the most put together woman in the room. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, Mary, I feel like I could have written that narrative um, myself. And I think many of the women listening probably could have as well. And so, you know, based on what you said, I assume that this was you. But at, at what point did you realize that you were just simply just burned out and exhausted from always being so put together? I briefly want to pause today's episode to share some exciting news with you. A little goes a long way. 52 Days to a Significant Life, which is my print devotional, will release on October the 4th, but it is available for pre-order now at most major retailers. Y'all, this dream coming into reality would not be possible without you. Every comment, every prayer, every word of encouragement, every podcast listen, it has all mattered. It has all gone a very long way in my own heart and life. And so I just want to say thank you. You have played a significant role in my life. And my prayer is, is that this devotional plays a significant role in yours. My hope is that in these pages, you will believe your life does make a difference and your contributions do matter. In a culture where bigger is seen as better, a significant life is actually simpler than you think. Pre-order your copy of A Little Goes a Long Way today. I I do want to tell you one thing, and, and this spoke to me a lot. I bet I'll speak to you as well. And that is, I saw an article with Viola Davis in People Magazine once, and she was talking about how she did it. She grew up with, you know, very poor, with very little in her family. And the interviewer said something to her to the effect of, well, do you feel like you're healing little Viola along the way? And she said, heck no, are you kidding? She's healing me. Like I picture her like dancing around my kitchen and being like, look at our refrigerator. Like, can you believe this? And what I love about that is not the refrigerator or the things or or any of that, but just even if we're still on a journey of getting right in our identity and getting right in our worth and getting right in, you know, operating out of the solid rock, solid, secure ground that we cannot, we cannot lose God's love. We cannot lose who we were created. So like run towards the big goals. And that'll be really awesome if you get there. And guess what? If you don't, you learn some stuff, but you did not fail. You cannot fail. You cannot lose it. That's freedom. All of that. And also look how far you've come. Look at the generational change that has already occurred in your family tree. And I'm not talking financially, although that's probably there, or like niceness of home, although that's there. I'm talking about the healing, the cleaning out of old wounds, the how you interact and see and make an effort to really see and pour into and speak into the lives of your children. Your family tree can be traced back to the break in the chains that has happened from one generation previous to you. That alone deserves to be celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I I mentioned, and you mentioned, and actually in a quote in your book says that you cannot achieve your way into worth. And I'd love for you just to elaborate on this concept and share. We, we alluded to this too, but where our worth actually comes from. Yeah. I mean, I want to start that answer with like, believe me, I have done all the scientific testing. I've done the field research on the data. I have really tried. I have really, really, really tried to achieve my way into worth. And here's where I need to tell everybody listening and you and me to a certain extent, I think every single person has to try for themselves. They have to experience it for themselves. I think it's very similar to burnout in that way. When we were coming up in our business, there were 
more established for their head business owners who would try to say to us, you need to slow down. You need to get rhythms. You need to get workflows. You're going to burn out. It's going to be bad. And we were like, maybe for you, grandpa, but like, we don't know how much we can hustle. You don't know. How- we'll sleep and we're dead. And then fast forward a few years and we're that, you know, weathered, <laughs> established business saying to new people, listen, you need to slow down. You need to have systems. You need to have workflows. Oh, whatever, grandma. Right. And so to a certain extent, anybody who has truly experienced burnout, you know, it's not coasting off to the side of the road because you run out of gas. Nice, slow, steady pause beside some green pastures while you wait for the tow truck company to come with more fuel. It's more like you're flying down the highway, 90 miles an hour, your hair's on fire, the transmission falls out and then you slam into a brick wall. That is more like what true burnout feels like where you, you are now, you know, face first into a hard stop. So to a certain extent, every one of us listening has to try, you have to try to go out and say, well, what if I made it into this school? Well, what if I could buy that shirt from that store, not on sale? What if I could build that new house? What if I could have people say on Instagram, oh, I love your kitchen or whatever, whatever, whatever it is for you. To a certain extent, you just have to get a little bit sick on a steady diet of marshmallows and Pez candy dispenser, like in dirt, I talk about like, just keep the candy coming, God, one sugary sweet high after another. Never mind that it only numbs, but never satisfies. And never mind that I'm now like a walking root canal, the size of a chest wound, you know, this open hole in my heart, people can see right through me, nothing's getting healed. And I just feel ill all the time because all I've had is an empty calorie diet of chasing more and more and more. To a certain extent, you have to reach that point yourself if you're ever going to believe me. And that's why in the second book, one of my favorite parts about this, Dirt and Slow Growth are actually kind of like sister books. They really go hand in hand. Dirt itself is divided into two parts, the girl in the trailer and the girl after the trailer. And I would say if Dirt is a love letter to the girl in the trailer, Slow Growth is a love letter to the woman after, where there's a really interesting thing. As a a writer, I feel like you're going to love this. At the end of Dirt, there's this passage that's talking about at a certain point, breathless and at last exhausted, you find yourself in surrender on the ground. You have run so hard for so long out into the world, trying to find your way into worth only to, you know, end up right back where you started. And you finally lay there and say, it's, it's never going to happen. Death to this old self before the thrill of hope can take flight. And so the end of dirt becomes the beginning of slow growth. I say, our inciting incident is this breathless and at last exhausted. This is the moment, the Sharpie mark through the calendars, my friend Hannah Brencher calls it, that divides our life into a before and an after where we finally reach the end of something, the end of all the striving and achieving and performing, the end of ourselves. We say, I guess it's never going to work. Now I got to go back to the beginning and figure out what does. And it sets off this entire journey that is book two of what does it look like to figure out who we are apart from what we can do? So they really truly are you know, just like, you know, one big extension of the story, but they're linked together by what you think is the end of one story actually kicks off the journey of the next ones. The second, my second act, the second part of my life, figuring out what does it look like to be here with purpose? Yeah. So is this how we stop our achieving and our striving and performing? I mean, to just come to an end of yourself and realize that it doesn't work. I mean, is, is that how we, how we stop? I think that's the start. I think that's the start of the journey. And then I think more of the journey becomes 
really starting to think about it. Like in the book, in slow growth, I come at it from a bunch of different angles. I literally sat down and I said, this is not a linear problem. This is not a linear algebraic equation. This is not one plus one equals two. That's not algebra, but you know what I mean? Um, there, I wish it was. Like, I wish it was. But. <laughs> right. I think when I think of it, I think of it more as like a bicycle wheel or any kind of, you know, but the bicycle wheel is the best visual where the center of that bike is getting to a place, you know, like what's causing me to achieve for my worth. Then there are all these different things that feed into it. There's comparison. There's the checklist of what other people say is success. There are the expectations. One of my favorite entries is a Penske truck worth of a Penske truck full of expectations um, of what other people expect us to go do with our lives. It's the filter of the underdog. It's the filter of expecting not to be chosen, right? It's this feeling like you can walk into a room and somebody can see right through you like Hannibal Lecter could see right through Clarice. I was really psyched to get Hannibal Lecter into a Christian devotional, <laughs> by the way, right? So it, it examines it from all of these different aspects of like, what does it look like to sort through each of those through identity, you know, through um, the frenetic, frantic feeling of having to keep up. If I stop, then everybody else will drown me uh, with just climbing on top of me to get what they want. So in running the race and you sit down on the side of the road and nobody else stops, like, what's up guys? I thought we'd all agreed we wanted to slow down. And so it's really, it's exploring, like, what does it look like to attack this from every angle? And, you know, from a practical standpoint, um, in this conversation, I think so much of it begins with how we talk to ourselves. I think so much of it begins with, are we beating ourselves up for the one thing we didn't get done, despite the 10 that we did? Are we beating ourselves up for oh my gosh, I walked into the room and like I had eyeliner under my eye instead of the fact that you walked into the room and made somebody else feel seen. You know, it's like that idea of shame is a two-step process, right? Brene Brown talks about this wholehearted is one step. Oh gosh, I tripped walking into the room. That happened. Shame takes the second step to say though, I tripped, therefore I failed. Therefore there's something about me that is wrong and broken and embarrassing and will never get my act together. And I deeply understand that because the, the like, you know, soundtrack on a loop in my brain through my entire life where I'm just now beginning to even catch it mid thought is you will always be the one whose hair is a mess. You will always be the one whose clothes are a mess. You'll always be the one. The second you walk in, you feel like maybe you're okay when you leave the hotel room, but you walk into the conference or whatever, everybody else, why didn't I think to wear that? Why didn't I think to show up with that? Why didn't I bring that? Why didn't I have that prepared? Why am I always behind? And so I think it starts by just like capturing those thoughts and saying, what am I speaking over my life? What am I saying matters on a day-to-day -day basis? And what does God say about each and every one of those things? Yeah. yeah. It makes me think, Mary, um, as you were talking, because, um, you know, when Paul talks about the thorn in his side, I feel like one of the thorns in my side that is one of those spokes in the bicycle that you were just talking about is, is insecurity. Mm. You know, yeah. I just feel inadequate and all those, those thoughts that you were just saying are thoughts that I have. And I, and I feel like the root of those often is the insecurity in myself. Yes. Do you find the same okay. thing? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. I'm just going to like pull this little book up here right now and I'm going to read to you as soon as I can find it. Let's is see it a here. chapter in your book, Insecurity? It is a chapter in what's technically called. Let me find it. Let me find it. Mm, insecurity rears her lovely head number mm. 17 I told you I was I just, your avatar <laughs> yes let me just read a little tiny bit here in the beginning in the beginning okay here we go most of us are so afraid of failing that we never even start 
there, I said it. Now we can deal with it. The irony for overachievers, of course, who normally feel pretty miserable and worthless unless we're out there, you know, achieving, is that when faced with the prospect of failure, it suddenly feels safer for us to do nothing than to risk coming up short. We feel paralyzed. We feel stuck. We become experts in avoidance. We would rather not even try, not even go after something, not even break ground on building the dream and have to deal with one of the, the pain of things not working out. It suddenly feels safer to create nothing than to create failure. The world is absolutely stuffed full with self-preserving achievers. We're out there slow limping around, pretending like we don't have a dream, our eyes glazed over with the look of someone who has forgotten what it feels like to really be alive, bumping up against our excuses over and over on repeat, like some sort of walking dead. We are sleepwalking our way through our own lives, all in the name of saving face. Recently, I was with a friend and we got to talking about all the ways we get in our own heads when it comes to getting started on a dream. We think it's already been done. We think it's already been done better. We think it's already been done by someone the world actually wants to pay attention to. We think to ourselves, who is ever going to care about this? Insecurity rears her lovely head. She flips her perfect hair, looks out from the four corners of her squares of influence and smiles a crest white strip smile in our direction, all the while whispering about how we'll never be enough of something in order to have something to say. Not skinny enough, not young enough, not pretty enough, not outgoing enough. So we take all those gifts that have been burning up inside us and hide them away again, a light under a basket. We go back to sleeping on a dream that has already been a lifetime in the making, but we're forgetting the most important part. People who want to serve start. Yay. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm like, want to get on Amazon right now and pre-order. Oh, okay. <laughs> so good. So That'll good. It's speaking to me on so many <laughs> levels and you know, I think, you know, we mentioned culture before and it, there really is this, this belief that for whatever reason, faster is better and bigger mm. is better. And I love that you're like flipping that on its head. And it's like, no, slow is slow is good. Slow is actually mm. a good thing. So I'd like to talk about time and pace. So how, mm. how would you encourage us all to just embrace slow and convince us that good things do really take time and not too much? Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like, first of all, I just have to, um, I have to say like, be careful the mantras that you pick for your life. Cause life has a really funny way of, of making that true. <laughs> like, I'm like, I always say to my husband, like, dang it. Why didn't we say overnight success is super easy and everything you touch <laughs> turns to gold. <laughs> right. You well, got to live this message out now. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, cause my husband, Justin is the first person who ever said to me, he said it in our business. He said it, we were eating tacos. We were sitting outside and I was super frustrated that everybody else who had gotten started around the same time as us just seemed to be taken off like wildfire, like taken off overnight. And he was just saying like, you know, they're running sprints and we're running a marathon. And like, there's a reason slow growth equals strong roots, uh, you know, two different, maybe that'll be another book. That's two different amazing metaphors right there. Um, and here's the analogy that I like to point myself to when I need the reminder and that I point everybody else to. And it is this idea of there is a reason that milkweed is on a different timetable than a redwood giant. You know, it is very tempting to go, ah, oh, I really do just want to grow like a weed. Um, and I, I, I think of some people who have grown like weeds. I think of some like, like business plans that have grown like weeds, the, the influencer market, as it were. And you look up and overnight, it seems like they popped up out of nowhere and they're six feet tall, or they popped up out of nowhere and the whole yard or the whole field is filled with them. It's very tempting in that moment to say, I want to grow like that. I want to, I want all of the qualifiers around what I'm doing to be this fleeting currency of more, how fast, how much, how many, 
And I want to be like, they are where everything is just, it's spreading like wildfire. It's growing like crazy. I, I hardly have to put any effort in, but where I grew up, Rachel, you might resonate with this as well. Behind our trailer was a field full of weeds before it gave way to the woods. And we would run through that field on our way to the woods. And one of the things we would do is run along and just bloop, 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 picking those, you know, five, six foot tall weeds out of the ground with the slightest bit of effort, only to see about an inch of roots that was holding them up. And I say in this new book, like, thank God that you gave me a part of my story where I knew weeds and a part of my story where I knew trees, where I was raised by a family who were experts in trees. And that these things that feel like they are shiny and new and quick um, and grow really fast, it can be so tempting to want that too until you realize how quickly they get knocked over with the first storm. And if what we are doing is trying, you know, I talk about weeds, I talk about flowers, which are pretty for the sake of being pretty. And I say, but if we want to do something that stretches beyond us, that provides fruit to others that can be given away, that's shade and shelter and lasts for generations, that's going to take longer. But like ask a redwood giant at the height of where they've grown, if they would swap that to be a weed in a field that got mowed down, right? This wheat from the chaff separation, it would never change its story because you're not looking at it from the zoomed out full timeline. So that's my advice is think about the redwood, do you, which, do, which do you want to be? And then zoom out the timeline and just say like, if you, man, there've been so many times in my life where I would have, I would have freaky Friday right there with anybody in a second. <laughs> Give me her story, God. It's so much better. I'll swap in a minute. And you zoom out over the course of our lives and what I would have missed out on all the things I would have missed out on if I'd taken that bet. So I'm just betting that God is making me to be a redwood giant. He's making you to be a redwood giant. He's making everybody listening to stand for something bigger and longer and over the long haul of generations and things like that just take time. Uh, on the back of the book, it says real things take time to grow. Good things take time to grow. You are not in a race with anyone. Slow growth equals strong rates. So yeah, redwood, redwood trees. Everybody's just going to be thinking about redwood trees. <laughs> for yeah, I guess today. maybe it comes from being in Kentucky, but um, so my in-laws, their farm is actually called Tall Oaks. Yes. And because my father-in-law is my husband and his sister were growing up, would always say um, on this very same topic from little acorns, tall oaks grow. Yeah. And it's the same concept, you know, it starts small and you can start to compare yourself to all the other fast growing things. Mm. But this is where the, the you know, we want to be strong. We want to have those, those deep roots. And so um, that was yeah. a message preached to them for so long. And in fact, when we moved to our new home, um, they sent us a, an acorn. I um, love it to plant. Are you ready to have your world rocked? Are you ready? ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. Our pastor, Justin Kendrick, who just released a book called bury your ordinary, mm -hmm. um, talked about this in a sermon years ago, years and years ago, one of the first sermons we ever heard from him. And he was talking about how an acorn, when it gets buried into the ground, whether somebody planted it or just, you know, in the forest or whatever, the first thing that it does is it actually like nestle like it, it sends a shoot down instead of a shoot up so like up is food up is light up is life up is what it needs to survive right that's what you think but it actually grows down before it ever tries to grow up um and what's interesting is that in that inside that acorn as it starts to you know it's so think about how packed solid that is as it starts to unfurl in the ground in that process what you realize is that it was created with all the nutrients it would need to survive during that time, that what it needed to dig roots first was always inside it. Mm -hmm. So good. 
So good. And then, yeah, eventually you get to be the giant righteous oak, right? You get to be the oak that provides, you know, the branches for other people that changes your family tree, but it's, it's hard. It's easy to get impatient. Mm. It's easy to get impatient, but just try to keep your eyes on what you'd be giving up. Yeah. Well, let's talk about to, you know, because, because on the same imagery, you know, so often we are tempted to see that what's going on above the surface. And in fact, my pastor this past Sunday was talking about the Brooklyn Bridge and how I think it was like in this, uh, I'm I'm not even going to try what, (laughs) what year it was, maybe the seventies, but anyway, it doesn't matter. They were talking about how for four years, there looked like there was no building going on. They had planned Mm -hmm. and were excited about this project for so long. Well, then the taxpayers are start to get upset because they're like, there's, we can't see anything. We can't see any results, but it was then all of a sudden these big towers were erected and everything that had been being built was underneath the surface. And so let's talk about that for a moment, how, you know, these, these strong roots, they, a lot of this growth is unseen, Mm. Um, but it's so important. And so much of it goes on inside of us. God is working on so much that maybe nobody is seeing the fruit right now, but the fruit is going on inside. So would you talk about just that concept for, for a moment? Yeah, I love that so much. First of all, all of that was so good. And I think that's a message. That's a message that really needs to be underlined and specifically highlighted for people listening. When I say slow growth equals strong roots, what I don't want you to hear is that it's always by necessarily going to feel this slow forever. Um, Because think about the Brooklyn Bridge, right? It was slow, 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 slow. And then it went up really fast. Here's what we need to learn about that and pay attention to is, um, and there's a part in one. So each entry in slow growth equals strong roots is followed by slow growth prayer. And one of those prayers is talking about God, you know, when a yes to this prayer would be more of a burden than a blessing simply because we are not ready yet to handle it. And I think about this a lot as uh, a you know, pretty new author still. It's just, it's just my second book. And I have people on all the time who are much further along in that journey on the podcast. And I'll ask them like, man, is there ever a moment when you'd like to put the genie back in the bottle? Like, is there ever a moment you'd like to not have all these eyes on what you're doing? You'd ever, you know, not want to have so many people so quick to criticize or whatever the case is. And, um, what I know is happening right now in me, I am in a very much in a preparation season. There's not a doubt in my mind. I've gotten this message 47 different ways from Sunday. Mary, you are being worked on now. Your character is being rooted. It's being refined in the fire. Your grit, your tenacity, your integrity. My coach, Kim Butler calls these roots of empathy for every person who does not see you or does not treat you like you matter. You will never do that to somebody else. You are being equipped right now for the call that's been put on your life so that if there is some, you know, Malcolm Gladwell-esque tipping point at some point in my future, in some point in your future, Rachel, or anybody listening, we will draw from the very virtues that are being carved away and chipped away in us right now. And guess what? That hurts. It is not a, a pleasant process to be refined, right? It's not as pressure. It's molding. It's, you know, gold from the fire. It is not pleasant, but man, when you reach the point where you go, I had a hard story. And for a long time in my life, I would have freaky Friday with anybody in a second to swap for an easy story. But at some point I reached this turnaround where I would much rather have the kindness, the empathy, 
the gentleness, the soft place to land that I've become for other people because my hard edges were carved away by hard things. I would rather be that than have an easy story. Easy stories now kind of feel plastic. You know, they feel like fresh from the factory production. They have not been worked on yet. I would rather be who I am and have lived through that story than to walk an easier path. That I think is wisdom, you know, and it only took me 40 some years to get there. So, <laughs> so pro- process, progress, all of the things, but yeah, I think that's it. I think it's like, I do think there will be times in my life and your life and all of our lives when things speed up and they're happening really quickly. And we'll say, thank God for all of those slow unseen times when we were being prepared. Cause man, would I have messed that up if I got that sooner? Yeah. Is it Mike Todd? Um, I've been, you know, just on Instagram, he's been posting a lot about, you know, you, you look at my here, but let me show you a lot about what, you know, you, you, it looks like I just sprang up out of nowhere, but really I've been working for decades. You're just now seeing all the work of me being prepared. Um, And I think that, you know, we do just, we look at people, it goes back to comparison. We look at where people are and and don't realize the many, many, many years of preparing and and doing the work. And I think that that's just really good for us to remember. Um, As we, as we start to close, Mary, I asked my guests the same question. um, And so I'd like to ask it of you. So based on today's conversation, how do you think we can best be love offerings? Yeah. Uh, okay. So it's a little bit of a tough love moment for all of us. And I think it's to get over ourselves a little bit. And what I mean by that is to get over the idea. Like I talked about in that entry of like, what if it doesn't work out? What if I'm embarrassed? What if somebody sees me fall? What if somebody sees me fail? All those reasons that we choose to create nothing rather than to create failure. And we're so in our own heads, that ego part of our brain is so busy telling us, don't do that. Stay safe. What would happen? Oh my gosh. What if we couldn't handle it? That would be really embarrassing. Like stay in the comfort zone, stay in the comfort zone. It's doing everything it can to keep us focused on self, even though we might feel very selfless or like we, we are good people who, who want to, you know, not think about ourselves really when you're not starting because of what if it fails, that's a different way of being focused on self instead of saying, who could it help? Who can it help telling this really hard story? Who could actually find themselves in it? Who might have the courage to tell their hard story because you made it normal. You made it normal for somebody to start in a trailer or, or whatever the case may be. You, you know, that you found a way to put yourself in your dad's shoes and see the places where he was trying and not to like normalize alcoholism, but to say, let's go back and find out where that started for him. Let's get curious about his story, right? There's just so much that happens Uh, A photographer, Esther Havens, has this line that I just will never forget. She said, stories change stories. And so when we are brave enough to stand, you know, step forward and raise our hand and say, I know that I'm terrified. I know I might fall on my face, but I've been given these gifts and I have to see what God wants to do with them because people who want to serve start, right? That is the epitome of, you know, there's a reason that passion means suffering. Like I'll go through a little bit of suffering because I'm not going to be worried about me looking foolish. I'm going to continue to ask myself, who could it help? Mm. Oh, that's so good. I have just, 
I have loved my time with you. And um, this is any indication of what your show is like. I know listeners <laughs> are going to want to come and listen to your show as well. You have a podcast. And so tell other than them being able to tune into that every week, how else can we stay in contact with you? Yeah. So if you want to check out the podcast, you can go to the Mary show.com. That's M-A-R-Y-M-A-R-A-N-T-Z the marymarantshow.com uh, or if you just go to marymarants.com you'll see a link for the podcast and um probably one of the things we're most excited about that we just released along with the second book coming out is in the book I actually like I mentioned we you know as a photographer for 15 years before becoming an author and my husband Justin and I would take these really beautiful editorial photos of ballerinas and like a masked woman in Venice and you know these big beautiful billowing dresses and they we never used those photos anywhere we were just sort of you know we knew we were doing them because we were burnt out and we wanted to feel creative but we were sort of like also like huh I wonder what those were for and then I write this book and it all just snaps into place all the puzzle pieces come together and we realize they were taken six years ago, but they become the symbolism of these characters I introduced throughout the book of the woman who is always performing. So there's the performer, the contortionist, the masquerader, the illusionist in the distance, the tightrope walker, and they all represent very different, but yet somehow all the same because they're all the same model, which is another interesting story um, of the, the woman who's always performing. So just to give you an idea, the achiever, sorry, the performer achiever type which is what I am, um, not only has big goals, but she wants other people to see how far she's come. So she's driven by inner and outer. Um, whereas the tightrope walker is only driven by her inner expectations of herself and she does not care who claps or doesn't clap. And the contortionist does it to please other people and so on. And so we have actually put together a quiz where you can take it and find out which achiever type you are and then learn more about your strengths and also the things about that type that might be keeping you stuck from, you know, who could it help, you know, if you want to serve then start. So you can find that at marymorantz.com slash quiz, or it'll also be live on slow growth equals strong roots.com. And then it's at Mary Marantz on all the socials. That's so fun. Okay. I think I already know which one I am, but Ooh, I'm tell take- me, tell me. Well, I mean, yeah, I think take- I'm the achiever. Like you said, I mean, like I'm the girl that the, wants the performer. It. Yeah. Or the performer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm going to take it and I'll let you know if, if, if the yeah. quiz was accurate. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's another one. There's another one that I think a lot of people, I think I'm also, I kind of like, I'm the performer, but I could, my second close one would be the illusionist in the distance Mm. who always feels like until I'm at that place, I can't get started till I fix all these things about my life that I can't get, you know, moving forward. So I bet there are a lot of people listening who are into that one as well. Yeah. So fun. I'm going to put those in the, in the show notes. So everybody can go and do that. But Mary, thank you. Uh, thanks for helping us to see kind of the beauty in our dirt and for helping us to find the freedom and the grace and the purpose in an overachieving world. Uh, God bless you. Thank you so much for today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode with Mary Marantz. We hope today was an encouragement to you to believe that slow growth equals strong roots. This week, our love offering is from Mary. She says that we can be a love offering by getting over ourselves. Instead of thinking, what if it fails? Consider who could it help? 
If you're interested in show notes, you can head on over to at Rachel Adams author on Instagram and Facebook. I'd love to connect with you there. I'd also love to connect with you over on the Love Offering Facebook community. There each week we dive in deeper into each podcast episode into the blog series and we encourage one another to live faithfully and love fully. If you have not yet subscribed, rated, and reviewed the Love Offering Podcast, I'd so appreciate if you would take the time to do that, just so more women can find and hear this Love Offering message. All of this information can be found at rachelkadams.com. There you can subscribe to receive the weekly Love Offering newsletter, and all of this information can go straight to your inbox each week. Next week, my guest is Renee Swope. Renee is on the show talking about confidence and specifically her books, A Confident Heart and A Confident Mom. So I can't wait to chat with you again then. But until then, I hope you have a terrific week. And as always, remember to lead with love. Mm